Thank you very much, Noah. Um, so my name is Preston Bruno. I am a senior associate in the litigation department at Choate Hall and Stewart, and I practice uh, in the privacy and data security space. Um, just to give a rough outline of what we're planning to walk through today, um, I think all three of us are going to talk a bit about what our practices look like. And then after we do that, we're going to talk about some topics of interest that we think are relevant to people who might be interested in this space. Um, with that said, I will hand it over to Jared so that he can introduce himself. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Jared Reinheimer. I am an assistant attorney general in the uh, Massachusetts Attorney General's Office in the Data, Privacy, and Security Division. And um, yeah, I've been here about six years. Um, uh, you want to go next, Christopher? Sure. My name is Chris Markham. I'm assistant United States attorney. So on the federal side to Jared's state side in the securities, financial and cyber fraud unit. Uh, before that, I was a prosecutor on active duty in the military and it was a uh, associate Jones Day in both their litigation and cybersecurity uh, practices. Wonderful. Um, Jared, do you want to start off by walking us through your kind of background, what your practice looks like? Sure. So um, uh, the attorney general's office is pretty broad. Um, we do a whole bunch of different things. Our division uh, in particular um, is focused on civil law enforcement work. Um, and so our day-to-day -day consists largely of uh, conducting investigations. Um, usually these investigations are done uh, pre um pre-lawsuit, so um, often we'll send out civil investigative demands or formal requests for documents, which are, um, you know, very similar to subpoenas, uh, deposition notices, things like that. Um, we uh, do that regularly. Um, we uh, sometimes do that in conjunction with other state attorneys general. Um, for instance, um, there are sometimes larger multi-state settlements that get conducted and we'll uh, coordinate with other states um, to, to get those done. Um, a lot of our investigations result in uh, some form of re a resolution, either an assurance of discontinuance, which is allowed for under the consumer protection laws in Massachusetts, um, or consent judgments, which uh, get filed in court. Um, and sometimes we will go straight to litigation. Um, in the Equifax case, for instance, uh, we, uh, we sued uh, fairly quickly after the, uh, the data breach was announced. Um, the, the way that we sort of get the topics that we investigate either come through consumer complaints, uh, conducting our own research, uh, news reports, or um, we will get uh, uh, many, many breach notifications uh, that are required to be submitted to us by companies every year. Um, the other side of our work is advocacy work, which is um, uh, focused on uh, sort of uh, pushing forward the attorney general's priorities um, in particular areas. So um, for example, we, uh, uh, we submitted an amicus brief um, a while ago in the Spokio versus Robbins case, um, which was um, concerning a gentleman who <laughs> was unhappy with this profile on Spokio. Um, we will sometimes comment on proposed federal rules or legislation. Um, 
things of that nature. Um, and we were also involved as one of the states in um, the net neutrality litigation um, that arose after the recent change in rules um, back during the Trump administration. So um, that's kind of a, a picture of our day-to-day -day and what we do. And I think later on, I'll kind of talk about the different areas that we, that we look into. But yeah, that's me. Thank you. Can I ask you a quick question, actually? Um, sure. how, how large is the data privacy in security division at the Attorney General's office? So it's one of those smaller divisions. We have, um, currently we have three attorneys, paralegal. Um, but uh, we do, um, I would say, some of the high profile work and investigations there. Um, the Equifax case was something we were working on. Um, the, there was an Uber settlement from a while ago that we were involved in. Um, there's a social media investigation that we're working on right now that's been announced. So um, I would say don't let the small number of attorneys necessarily uh, fool you. Thank you. That's very interesting. Um, Chris, do you, do you want to walk through your background a bit? Sure. Uh, so I'll start breaking the two chunks, what I was doing as a, when I was an associate and then what I'm doing here at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So like I said, when I was an associate at Jones Day, I worked in the litigation and cybersecurity space. Um, and a lot of my time ended up being taken up by data breach response, basically uh, working diligently in the hopes that I would not get a SID or our client would not get a SID from Jared or one of the other 49 states or one of the many federal regulators or god forbid one of the many international uh regulators uh, because most of our clients are both in the united states and abroad um so big picture uh what would happen in those cases and what i would do uh, i know preston does some of this so i'm not going to go into too too much detail because he'll be speaking about it as well but you know a data breach would happen and you know you'd get that call and a you know, it's always like a Friday afternoon because hackers are smart enough to know that everyone's going home. The data uh, security people are going home for the weekend or it'll be 4th of July weekend or something. And they'll be like, uh, we think we have a problem. We think someone's in our system. And pretty quickly you spin up a uh, forensic team. So, you know, what I, what I would call the, uh, the nerd ninjas or whatever what, uh, your nickname for them will be. And these are the people who can actually tell you like what is going on in the system and whether anyone is still in that system actively. And then pretty quickly after that, you know, you try to stop the breach from happening, but you start to turn to, you know, what information has been released. You're looking at civil liability in terms of if you've lost people or customers' personal information, they might end up suing you. Um, if you don't comply with the state, the 50 different state regulations, you might be dealing with, you know, Jared or other uh, states uh, who would get involved. And then you're, you're looking at who are their federal and international regulators to make sure you're complying with those regulations too. Uh, and what's really tricky about these cases is one, you have to move really quickly because a lot of times there are deadlines for how quickly you have to notify either people or regulators. In addition to that, because there's so many different regulations, if you haven't worked in the space a decent amount, it, it can kind of feel overwhelming of like, well, what am I even, uh, some of these regulations are conflicting, like. Uh, what are they even really requiring from me here in the statute? Uh, so you pretty quickly try to suss out, you know, who do I have to notify, what sort of requirements do I have to comply with, and where do we potentially um, have liability? Um, so, you know, some of the different federal regulators I 
I worked with in terms of responding to a data breach would be health and human services at the federal level, right? So if you are working with a hospital or someone who has HIPAA information, you're probably regulated by health and human services, and they have their own, you know, Jareds there who, who deal with this sort of response. Um, if you're working with a Department of Defense contractor, they're probably regulated at the federal level by the Department of Defense, uh, which has their, again, their own set of regulations and requirements of how you report data breaches. And um, God forbid you've lost some classified information. They want to know about that within, you know, immediately, basically. Um, or I've, I've worked with schools who uh, universities are governed by the Department of Education and they operate under something called a FERPA. It's a, it's a federal law that governs educational institutions. And again, if you lose student information, then all of a sudden you're dealing with the DOE, uh, Department of Education. And then, like I said, all the 50 states and potentially international regulators. And so these are all the different puzzle pieces you're trying to put together in real time as to what your client needs to do. Um, so some of the things I learned from that experience that transferred well over to the U.S. Attorney's Office was internal investigations generally and on a quick timeline. So, you know, you're dealing with potentially privilege issues of what an internal privilege investigation looks like. And you're also creating um, investigation case trackers, right? Like what, in, what witnesses are you interviewing and what, what part of the case team is doing that? Maybe you have a part of the case team that's doing legal research, figuring out exactly who we need to notify and when. And then also um, cyber forensic investigators, you know, basically agents who aren't lawyers who are uh, figuring out what actually happened in the system and sort of moving those things along. Um, in general, working with uh, cyber uh, forensic investigators has been really helpful because um, it's funny, I work in the cyber world, but I'm kind of a Luddite. Like I don't, I wish I didn't even have an iPhone. Like I don't, I, if, my version of a fun time is going to the woods without anything for a while. So, um, you know, but what it requires is not that you have to be really into technology in general, uh, in your personal life. It, it requires uh, an inquisitive mind, asking lots of questions, trying to figure out just like, what do you mean by that? When you use this word, what does that mean? Um, in some ways being in the military is really helpful because have you ever heard two people in the military talk to each other? It all sounds like acronyms and jargon that makes no sense. But if you actually just spend about like 20 minutes with them and ask them what the acronyms mean, what they're saying is very simple and very basic. They're just using their own lingo to say it. And a lot of times in the cyber world, it's the exact same thing. These computer forensic guys have their own language and their own world. But if you just ask questions and keep plugging away, it's not necessarily all that complicated. It's just a different language. Um, and the last thing was learning how to deal in the area of gray, uh, operate in the gray, as my old boss used to say, uh, which is to say that some of the laws are just, you know, there, there isn't precedent on them. There's no one explaining what they have really meant. And you have to be comfortable in a world, probably unlike, say, tax or maybe less so in like real estate. In the cyber world, the law is still being written in a lot of ways. Uh, and a lot of what Jared's doing is establishing that precedent that will inform companies of what, you know, what they are supposed to be doing in certain situations. Uh, and you have to be willing to sort of operate in that gray area. Um, so my current practice, like I said, in AUSA in the Securities Financial and Cyber Fraud Unit. Um, and unlike the civil side, which Jared does more of, I do entirely criminal work. I'm only investigating and prosecuting crimes. Or sometimes we'll work with 
people who are in civil units to sort of jointly investigate things. But my job is to um, find out whether there's a charge to bring, whether it's worthwhile to bring it, and then bring that charge and prosecute it in federal court. Um, so, you know, the similarities to my private practice was, you know, you're doing investigations, you're trying to figure out what happened. And as you're doing that investigation, you're taking all those steps. You always want to have one eye toward litigation down the road, right? Like if I create this document, what happens in private practice? What happens when we get sued? Do we have to turn this over? What, you know, how is this going to impact our potential liability? Um, and certainly as a prosecutor, you always need to make sure you're staying on the right side of all Fourth Amendment requirements and ethical boundaries to make sure you're not screwing up your case or your ethical obligations as you're putting together a case that uh, may down the road take away someone's liberty, which is a huge deal, obviously. Um, the differences though were, uh, are, are many. Uh, one, my current job is more fun, uh, but uh, besides that, in, on the private sector side, you're, you're less, I was less often trying to figure out, or, and I almost never figured out the who done it, right? When the hack happens, you might, it sort of might be nice to know who did it for a couple of reasons, you know, maybe trying to figure out what their modus operandi is to, to know what sort of information they might have taken. But you're really more concerned about uh, whether someone's going to sue you or what information you lost or what you have to do with your regulators. Here, I'm entirely trying to figure out the who done it because I'm trying to put a you know, figure out who, if anyone, should be charged with a crime. Um, and the upside of my current job and trying to figure out the who done it is that we have way more tools to do so. Uh, one, I work with, you know, when in the private sector, we'd, had to, we'd have to hire computer forensic experts. Here, I just have the FBI, U.S. Secret Service, Department of Homeland Security, uh, state and local police, all of whom have uh, very good uh, resources when it comes to investigating cybercrimes. Um, I'm in, uh, you know, for those people who aren't super familiar with the U.S. Attorney's Office, while we are in the District of Massachusetts U.S. Attorney's Office, which means, you know, we have Rachel Rollins, who's appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. She's my boss, and we all work in Massachusetts. Uh, there's also Maine Justice, which is the Department of Justice, and they have all of their subunits. So at the at Maine Justice in Washington, D.C., there's the National Security Division, which will uh, take some uh, cyber crime cases that involve state actors overseas. You know, if, if uh, Russia attacks uh, Massachusetts public utility, that's not going to be a civil investigative unit, right? That's going to be the National Security Division at Maine Justice. And we also have something called CSIPS, which I uh, encourage you to just Google and look into them. It's a super interesting unit. Uh, and they actually put out a lot of good resources on uh, cyber crimes and cyber investigations. And CSIPS stands for the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section. Um, and they're addressing crimes, sometimes with state actors, but oftentimes, you know, you're dealing more with the hackers or people who are stealing intellectual property. Uh, and then within the U.S. Attorney's Office itself here, so that's Maine Justice here in Massachusetts, um, we have some great resources. Uh, we have you know, financial auditors here who can follow money trails, um, and that includes like cryptocurrency trails and things like that. Uh, and also in addition to, to my unit, which is the Cybercrime and Financial Crimes Unit, um, just like I said, at Maine Justice, there's uh, you know, the National Security Division who deals more with the state actors. Here in Massachusetts, we also have a National Security Unit. And so um, the general rule of thumb for our office is that if 
there's a crime committed and it's by say a state actor or a terrorist organization, the national security unit is almost certainly gonna take that cyber crime. Whereas if you have people uh, committing cyber crimes for money, um, our unit will generally speaking take that. Sometimes we work together because sometimes state actors just want money and you know maybe there's some overlap there, but that's the general rule of thumb. Um, the other just functional tools we have besides all those resources are you know, subpoenas, unlike when I was in private practice, I can essentially send a letter on the behalf of the grand jury and get a whole lot of information. I can demand it. I can say, uh, and this is all non-content data, right? But if we're investigating a case and we send a subpoena, say, for IP addresses or people's bank records or phone calls, um, you know, there's a, there's a series of steps you have to take before you can just send a subpoena. You can't do it on a whim. But uh, if you, you know, show the office that we think crime's been committed and we think there might be evidence there, we can send a subpoena and get those records. Um, there's also something called a 2703D order, which is kind of a, a, a niche order, but what's really cool about it is it, it can show things like um, cookies, which is to say if someone is using this device and using that device or using multiple email addresses, it could potentially link them, because uh, a lot of times what cyber criminals uh, do is, you know, you can create a million Yahoo addresses every time you commit a new crime, right? And, and maybe, just maybe, you can start to link things up. Uh, and lastly, search warrants. These are obviously the hardest to get. You've got to go to a judge and convince them that you have probable cause that both a crime has been committed and that uh, you will find evidence of that crime in a specific, uh, you know, device or email account. Um, but the massive upside of going through that process and convincing a judge is that uh, you can get content data, which is to say like, you can actually get someone's, uh, the emails they actually wrote, or maybe their text messages they actually wrote. Um, and criminals have to talk to each other somehow, right? Almost all criminal organizations are working with another person. And when they do that, unless, you know, they're speaking solely in person, which is very difficult to do. Um, and frankly, the, the, the young generation these days just don't do that anyways, they all just text each other. Uh, so getting content data can be uh, really useful. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my overview. Um, and I'll kick it back to you, Preston. Thank you, Chris. That's a very interesting background. And if, if I could ask you a quick question, actually, um, you mentioned a number of organizations that are sort of involved, like you have the US Attorney's Office itself, you have Maine Justice, you mentioned a few other things. Um, if we're in a situation where an organization suffers from a data breach and it wants to coordinate with the federal government, which agency or piece of an agency would you recommend reaching out to, or does it not matter? No, I think it matters. Generally speaking, the FBI um, has field offices all over the country, and they specifically have cybercrime units. Um, and if you sort of poke around enough, you contact the FBI, there's typically, a, at least in Boston, there will be sort of a point person or a point unit who will like talk the company through it. What they can do is, you know, at any given was super case dependent, um, but they may um, open up an investigation. And typically the FBI is also the one who will um, uh, give companies or individuals some cover uh, at least for steps they're taking. You can sort of ask them like, hey, can I take this step or can I delay notifying people because you're investigating this? And they will probably give you some um, clearance on whether uh, you can do that or not. I'd also say in addition to the FBI though, most people um, have primary federal regulators. And so for the criminal side, 
it's generally speaking the FBI. Um, but you know, again, if you're a Department of Defense contractor, you know, so Raytheon is in Massachusetts, right? Uh, if they suffer a hack and are the victim of a crime, they, you know, they, get, they can and should contact the FBI. But the Department of Defense has its own regulations and is not necessarily going to care that you called the FBI. They're going to say, read the reg, you needed to tell us. So um, there's often situations where you're going to have to do both. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, just turning to my own background, I, I thought it might make sense to explain briefly why I wanted to go into the data privacy and security space in the first place. Um, and I think there are three primary reasons. Um, and I think some of this has come up in what Jared and Chris both said, but this is a really fast moving landscape. There are kind of constant developments in the law, which I think makes it very interesting both to try to keep up with, but as Chris mentioned, to try to anticipate how, how are courts going to interpret these laws? Where is this going to go? Um, it's a lot of gray area here. Just to provide a brief example, um, before 2018, no state had a comprehensive data privacy law. Um, as of today, and as of about a week ago, actually, five states now have comprehensive data privacy laws. And currently, 10 states, including Massachusetts, has have data privacy laws that are comprehensive, that are working their way through the legislature. Um, so very interesting to see where all of this is going to go and how states continue to move in this area. Um, you also get to do lots of statutory and regulatory work, which isn't true for every practice group if you're in private practice. Um, I really enjoy digging into statutes and kind of seeing how everything works together. And I find that to be an interesting puzzle. So I think it's another reason to kind of practice in this area. And um, the final reason is really you get to explore the intersections of law and technology. And as Chris noted, you don't need to kind of before the fact, be an expert in any of these areas. You really just need to be willing to learn. Um, and I find that not only being willing to learn, but kind of having the opportunity to learn about technology when working in this space is very interesting and compelling. My practice itself, at least in the data privacy security space, is split primarily among two areas, sort of compliance work and litigation work. Um, on the compliance side, I, I do a number of things. I assist organizations with putting together privacy notices. Um, primarily, my work was under the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, but since then, and given the kind of deluge of new state data privacy laws, um, there's had to have been consideration of kind of additional laws in this area. And I, I think it's sort of an interesting practice because you really get to work with your clients to determine what types of data they're taking in, what they're doing with the data, are they selling it, are they disclosing it to third parties, and then shaping that in a way that discloses in an appropriate manner in compliance with the law um, to the public. But kind of a secondary benefit of doing this is you really get to have a better understanding of your client's business, um, which is invaluable if you're trying to create and maintain relationships with clients. So I think it's kind of a maybe unrealized benefit of working on privacy policies. I also hope with security incident response, and Chris talked about this quite a bit, but dealing with particularly data breach notifications, uh, as he noted, all 50 states have data breach notification laws, as do some federal laws as well, such as HIPAA. Um, there's some variance in the law, which makes it sort of interesting to try to address uh, when you're dealing with a data breach, okay, 
you know, is technically a data breach under Massachusetts law? Is it under Illinois law? And the answers will differ depending on a number of factors, including what type of information has been accessed or what the trigger for access is under a specific law. Um, just to give one example, some states say if you have un unauthorized access to personal information and it's covered information, that alone is sufficient to trigger a data breach that you have to notify on. Other states say there actually has to be a risk of harm in accessing the information before you um, have to notify. And that requires some amount of judgment determining, okay, is there a risk of harm when this information has been accessed? Um, and then who you need to provide notice to also varies among states and at the federal level. It's usually the consumer or the individual whose information has been affected, but it also is often regulators. For instance, in Massachusetts, you have to notify the Attorney General's office, so you have to let Jared know. You also have to let the Office of Consumer Affairs and Business Regulation know. Um, and in certain instances, you'll have to let credit reporting agencies know about the breach. And sort of the content for each of these notices, even within a state, can vary depending on who you're notifying. I also assist organizations with putting together written information security programs, or WISPs. And this is really a feature of Massachusetts law, but any person, that's what the regulation says, who owns or licenses personal information of a Massachusetts resident has to implement a written information security program that uses um, technical, administrative, and physical safeguards to protect information. And there are 10 specific requirements for protecting personal information. I won't go into all of them, but for instance, you have to designate an employee who's going to have the responsibility for maintaining and implementing the WISP. Um, and there are also seven computer-specific requirements. Uh, for instance, you need to have user IDs that you're able to control so that not just anyone can access personal information. Um, you have to use encryption where it's technologically feasible to do so. That's that kind of thing. And then lastly, on the compliance side, I also assist with diligence and litigation risk analysis. This really comes up in the transactional context when we're thinking about, okay, the um, client of ours wants to acquire a company that has something to do with um, data, and we're assessing whether or not there are privacy or security issues around that, and whether there are risks, but also whether there are any mitigating factors that make the risks of litigation less likely. Switching over to the litigation side, I primarily deal with data privacy and security in two different ways. Um, one is data breach defense litigation. So defending a company who has allegedly suffered a data breach, which has allegedly caused harm to an individual. Um, these are usually claims of negligence or unfair and deceptive business practices. And on the latter side, just to give an example, it might be something like in your privacy policy, you represented that you had certain security practices, which in reality you did not have. Um, that might state a claim under unfair and separate business practices in this context. And then I also deal a little bit with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is a federal statute that has a criminal element to it, but also can result in civil liability. Um, in particular, this can come up in the trade secrets context if somebody you know, shares a password with somebody who shouldn't have it and they access information or if somebody accesses information without authorization or exceeds authorized access to obtain information. Um, these are all kind of hotly contested definitions and the Supreme Court has recently dealt with some of this, which I think Chris is going to speak on a little bit, but 
it's a very uh, interesting statute to work with. Um, so that's kind of my background in this area. Unless anyone has any questions, I think it might make sense to turn to the second part of our presentation, which is really just things we find interesting in this area uh, that we thought would be worth talking about. Seeing no questions, I think maybe I will throw it over to Jared, if that's okay with him, to start running through his presentation. Thanks, Preston. So um, I, I tend to think of, uh, you know, well, our division is named the Data Privacy and Security Division. So I tend to think of security and privacy as sort of, sort of like the two separate things that uh, we tend to work on. Um, on the security side, um, we enforce a lot of the laws that um, Preston had mentioned before. Um, the data breach notification law, chapter 93H, um, requires notice to our office. Um, and uh, Massachusetts is one of those states where if um, there's been unauthorized access to personal information, um, you need to notify us. Um, the uh, statute also requires notification to consumers. Um, we get... Uh, I want to say probably like seven to 10 notices. That's eh, probably more than that every week. Um, it's some, something to like two to around two to 3,000 a year. Um, and so uh, we review a lot of these. Um, we see a lot of them. Uh, you, need, you need to do it as soon as practicable and without unreasonable delay, according to the statute. Um, and uh, there are. Um, Sort of some interesting things that come out of that. One of those is the um, the Uber case, which was fairly, you know, it's getting a little old now, but um, that was a situation where uh, the the folks at Uber decided to not report the incident at all, um, having known that something had happened, uh, and uh, decided for a number of years to not report it um, and. Uh, if you look that case up, you'll notice that that was one of those where we worked with a bunch of other states as well and uh, got a 50-state settlement. Um, but that was one of those cases where delay was sort of a really important part of, uh, of the case. Um, there's some other aspects of the breach notification law, but um, also in the security area is something that I think is relatively unique to Massachusetts, which is our data security regulations, which um, Preston was mentioning uh, before, 201 CMR 17, where you have to create a written information security program. And it really is a program. You're supposed to implement it. You need to um, keep doing it. It's not just a document that's written down on a piece of paper. You actually need to follow it. A lot of our work focuses on um, <clears throat> investigating companies when we think that um, there's a potential that these particular regulations may have been violated. Um, there, um, you know, as Preston mentioned, there's many specific requirements, um, but there's a general um, there's a general requirement that it needs to be a comprehensive um, security program, and there's general requirements that are like based on the size, scope, and type of business, um, things like that. Um, the specific requirements are relating to encryption, annual review, monitoring, overseeing your service providers, which is one that um, tends to become pretty important sometimes. 
keeping your systems up to date, all those sorts of things. Um, and the Equifax case, I think, is a good example of enforcing that. Um, that happened uh, also a number of years ago now, but um, that was a situation where we sort of knew that there was something going on pretty quickly and started to um, started to uh, we actually just filed a, a lawsuit um, fairly quickly after. Um, Adam Bookbinder is asking what if there's any guidance on what as soon as pra practical means for notification of the office. Um, and if there's been situations where it's been too long. Um, yes, there are situations where it's too long. Uh, there's no, I mean, the statute doesn't have any particular number of days, right? And so um, what the statute says is, you know, when you know or should have known that a Massachusetts consumer was affected, um, you should notify as soon as practicable and without unreasonable delay. Um, this is gonna vary from case to case. Um, sometimes it takes some time to investigate the, the breach itself and figure out who was affected. Um, what, we, what we generally encourage is for folks to notify soon. If you don't know the total number of residents that may be affected, um, you can notify us and then notify us again. Um, and we sort of have a mechanism set up to accommodate uh, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, you know, the sooner we know, uh, the sooner we can follow up if there's something that's going on. And it's not uncommon for companies to say, do uh, like a tiered approach to finding out um, what consumers are affected by, you know, searching in areas where they think they may find the most information first, notifying those folks, notifying our office, and then kind of keeping us apprised as the uh, investigation goes along. Um, are there circumstances where we found companies took too long? Yes, um, and we will tend to uh, let you know if we get a breach notice that comes in that we think is too late. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, we will. We, we usually send out a letter in, in response to tell you, hey, um, we think that this is probably too long um, in the notification process. So um, the... Uh, back to like the security regulations, I think um, sort of the, the common issues that seem to be coming up today are um, ransomware and this new form of ransomware that data is exfiltrated first um, can become a large problem from a notification perspective um, because uh, there's ends up being a lot more data that you may have to figure out um, whether it involves personal information. Um, there's a lot of phishing, a lot of business email compromise attacks that we're getting notices about. And this tends to be a problem because it often requires expensive and lengthy review of folks' email accounts to figure out if there's personal information imposed on those email accounts. Um, we still see notifications where people don't have a WISP in place. Um, and uh, in those circumstances, we will, we will inform you that uh, there's a requirement. Um, one of the things I think is, is fairly common and something we tend to look for is a, um, an approach to business that often is, I guess what I would term a growth before security approach, um, where uh, some folks are so excited to get, get their business up and running and going that they kind of put the security considerations on the back burner for a little bit. 
Um, if we see something like that, it usually ends up being pretty concerning for us um, and uh, something we'll probably pay some attention to. Um, and then I think the other thing that is starting to become hopefully less common is sort of a lack of practices surrounding data minimization. So um, the idea is you want to keep only the data that you need, um, because if you don't have data, you won't have to notify anybody about it. So um, that general concept is data minimization. And I think companies are starting to really consider that now, because um, having too much information can sometimes be seen as a liability. Um, so that's sort of the data security side of things. And then we also do a lot of data privacy work, which I think um, is really interesting. And um, I, we primarily think about this through the lens of unfair and deceptive acts and practices and sort of a general right to privacy um, that exists. So um, I think the big thing that's going on right now is that um, many states are involved in investigations into um, Instagram and TikTok surrounding um, how uh, those apps may have uh, a mental health effect on teenagers. So um, that's something that our office announced recently um, and uh, something that we're really interested in and um, kind of trying to figure out whether um, sort of in light of the whistleblower for Instagram, um, whether those sorts of claims um, have some merit to them or have some weight. Um, the other area that I think we're really interested in right now is um, the degree to which um, uh, consent is uh, given for things like advertising, ad targeting, um, and particularly with respect to like private information um, that uh, like health information, for instance. Um, there, the other part of that, I think, is the re-identification of information and how that may affect consumers. The primary concern here is that, um, you know, consumers may be, uh, may not really know what information is being used about them um, in various contexts, and we're trying to explore um, the contours of that um, and really digging into that a lot. So, um, those are kind of the big topics that are of interest to us right now, but um, I'll pass it off unless there's any other questions to, to Chris. Oh, you gotta unmute yourself. Um, so I'm gonna address uh, three, what I would consider sort of the hot topics for uh, the Department of Justice right now, though, of course, um, there are many um in terms of specifically in the cyber area uh, one has been out uh for a while but it has um been particularly addressed in the last year which is uh, ransomware now this has been an issue for a really long time and uh as i'm sure all of you know ransomware is essentially when someone gets into your system will freeze your entire system or steal data delete data and then say you know pay us twenty thousand dollars in bitcoin to this random bitcoin wallet um, you know, somewhere in Eastern Europe or Southeast Asia or whatever. And until you, if you don't do it, we'll make all the data public and delete everything. Um, and for a long time, it was really the wild west in ransomware in terms of, you know, companies didn't, companies didn't really know uh, exactly what to do. They, uh, a lot of companies didn't have backups of their data, um, which is a major problem because if you, obviously if you have a backup, then if they threaten to delete your data, it doesn't, 
uh, matter quite as much. You just say, okay, we'll just upload our old systems. Um, people didn't know whether they could pay the ransomware. Uh, there are laws against, for instance, funding foreign terrorism. And if you are paying ransomware to a group that may be a foreign terrorist organization, you're dealing with uh, that as a private company. Um, and just functionally, like the blocking and tackling, like, okay, if you, like, do we pay this ransomware or do we not? And if we do, how do we even go about doing that? All those things, uh, you know, the past like 10 years, uh, people have kind of started to understand like, okay, how does this scheme typically work? Uh, in the past year or so, the Department of Justice has actually plussed up resources and taken AUSAs from around the country to be part of uh, groups that can specifically try to address ransomware. Um, I will say that ransomware is can be really difficult to prosecute. Um, and the major issue, uh, I'd say there's two major issues with ransomware. One is attribution. You know, trying to figure out who actually did something can be very difficult in the case of ransomware where someone just quickly gets in, essentially, you know, if someone runs into a house and throws a grenade in the house and then runs away, uh, it, that can be a very difficult time crime to solve because they just are in, they're out and everything's sort of destroyed on the way out. So attribution can be really difficult. Uh, and also you're dealing with overseas actors. Um, now the Department of Justice has um, some very good resources, uh, but you know, between mutual legal assistance treaties where you can get information from overseas. Um, you can get an extradition request if you find out that someone is overseas um, to try to get them back to the United States to prosecute them. But all those legal assistance treaties are different and they don't work necessarily super well in every state or every country. Um, and the same with extradition. We don't necessarily have extradition agreements with every country. And then in addition to that, you've got to think about the time and resources it's going to take to solve this crime, if you think you can, figure out who it was, and then actually get them extradited from overseas. And then, by the way, you have to go through the small task of proving beyond a reasonable doubt in front of a jury that it actually happened and that this was the person who did it, right? So um, that's not a reason to not address it. The Department of Justice, as I understand it, is... Uh, certainly uh, trying to address it, but those are some of the issues that can come up. Um, another interesting thing that came out, and I only wanted to note it because I think the policy just went live yesterday, so I am allowed to talk about it, but that's the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act cases um, under Section 1030. So this is a law that describes offenses that occur when a person um, accesses a computer without authorization or exceeds the authorized access uh, that they were allowed to have. Now, obviously, there are very simple cases. If I, you know, hack into your computer or hack into a system and steal information, that is, you know, okay, that's unauthorized access. What happened? What has happened over time, though, is, um, you know, there are some uh, clever federal prosecutors who have thought of more novel theories of what constitutes exceeds authorized access. And for instance, you may have someone at a company who's not supposed to be accessing the the T drive, right, or the or the N drive with this sort of information in it, but ends up accessing it because maybe they're interested in seeing something, you know, that exceeds their authorized access as an employee because they weren't supposed to be in there. But is that a federal crime or is that just, you know, a workplace issue or, you know, trying to figure out what is the outer bounds of the statute can be really difficult. Um, so there was a Supreme Court case called the Van Buren case. I won't get into it just because I'm not smart enough on it. Uh, to be honest, to speak uh, about all the details of it, but essentially it's courts trying to limit or figuring out how, uh, where the limits are of exceeds authorized access. 
um, and with the new Department of Justice policy that uh, came out, I believe just yesterday, tries to address that and direct prosecutors on what cases they can focus on, what cases they can't focus on. And you know, one of the uh, examples that popped out to me is that you know the the policy, for instance, makes clear that we cannot bring an exceeds authorized access case against a person for embellishing a dating profile in violating of the dating website's terms of service. Again, that probably seems really dumb, right? Like maybe you're a guy and you wanna be 5'8 on your dating profile and you're only 5'6 and it's like, maybe they have something on their terms of service saying you're not allowed to lie, so you're exceeding the authorized access, but you know, is that a federal wire fraud case, you know, because of that, or is that a really exceeds unauthorized access case? Um, so, you know, the Department of Justice is starting to establish its policies to, um, you know, sharpen its focus on where we really should be bringing these cases, uh, which certainly is an entirely uh, appropriate thing for the Department of Justice uh, to be doing to focus on, you know, the bad actors. Um, the last one is uh, cryptocurrency. Obviously, this is uh, all, all the rage these days. Um, but you know, when it comes to cryptocurrency, what the Department of Justice has to do is a few, a few different things in a few different areas. Um, one is understanding how cryptocurrency works so we can understand how to trace it and how to actually follow the blockchain. And you know, we do have resources and we've been working on cases where um, you, you, know, you have a typical, say, money laundering scheme. And those would go through bank accounts or maybe they used to go through cash and now they're using cryptocurrency. So it's not really a different scheme or it's not a, a different... Uh, it's not anything we haven't really seen before. It's just learning how to trace the money in a new way, which is through cryptocurrency on the blockchain. Um, on the other side of things, you know, not just the same crimes we've sort of always seen, but tracing money that way is, you know, similar crimes that we've seen before uh, in the businesses themselves. And by that, I mean, um, you know, sort of securities fraud or pump and dump schemes where companies are uh, embellishing uh, how great their cryptocurrency is or what the underlying assets of the cryptocurrency are or you know the functionality of that cryptocurrency uh and then they get you know you don't need that many people to invest a hundred bucks in a cryptocurrency and all of a sudden they've made millions of dollars when the underlying asset um they were being lied to about the fundamentals of the underlying asset um so again that's you know sort of these frauds that we've seen before uh where people are embellishing how good something is in order to scam money off of people. Uh, but cryptocurrency is particularly uh, susceptible in that area because um, of just sort of the naturally speculative nature um, of cryptocurrency at, at this current point, at least in its evolution. Um, there's a case in the District of Massachusetts, which I'm on, so I can't go into it too much, uh, but it's, it relates to a cryptocurrency called MyBigCoin. It's been charged, so what I'm talking about is all public record. But you know, that's essentially one of these cases where um, there is what the government has alleged was that there is a cryptocurrency called MyBigCoin, and that the person who was marketing it uh, made misstatements about uh, the underlying assets. So, for instance, that it was backed in gold, uh, when the government has alleged now that there was no actual gold. Um, or they claimed that they had agreements with MasterCard where you could use a MasterCard and it would charge your MyBigCoin account. And the government has alleged that to be clear has not proven uh, that you know, there was no agreement with MasterCard. Um, and so what's been interesting about that, about that case for me working on it is that you know, just like in the data privacy space where I had to get uh, forensic experts 
to show me, you know, how the hack is working and learn their lingo and learn this whole new area. Um, that's what, you know, we now have to do with the cryptocurrency space. And essentially, we've been doing the same thing. You get a cryptocurrency expert who, for us, you know, will testify a trial or help us do the investigation. And you just have to have a curious mind. You ask the questions, you learn the lingo, you get up to speed on it. Um, and before you know it, uh, you're doing an opening statement explaining to the average person what cryptocurrency is, uh, you know, hopefully uh, having it make sense. Um, so that the last plug I would make is that, you know, in the sphere, whether you think that you're uh, want to be a cybersecurity lawyer or not, I will say um, in most areas, every, or so in the criminal area and increasingly in, all the, in civil as well, every case is kind of a cyber case. Like you, you can't, um, cyber is sort of an amorphous idea, right? It's sort of like, well, what is that? Is that anything on the internet? Well, if it's anything on the internet, then like, yes, every case is literally a cybersecurity case, which means if you want to prove a crime has been committed or you want to prove, uh, you know, in civil litigation that something's happened, you're going to have to have at least a curious enough mind to understand, you know, how does WhatsApp work? Like, how can you search for someone's, you know, search history on Google? Um, if you have someone's computer, how can a forensic, expert walk through when something was saved in that computer and when it was transferred or emailed to someone else. These are all tools that probably fall into the realm of cyber, but increasingly, and I think already, are just the tools of being a lawyer. So um, I encourage you to just sort of have that curious mind um, and you know, go forward and just yeah, learn as much as you can. So Preston, back to you for the uh, home stretch. Absolutely. Well, thank you. But yeah. Do we have any questions? Nope. Okay. So I thought it might make sense just to briefly talk about the Massachusetts Information Privacy and Security Act, which is currently a bill that's pending in the Massachusetts legislature. Um, actually, on February 2nd, 2022, it was favorably reported by a joint committee. It's now currently before the Senate Committee on Ways and Means. Um, and if it were to take effect, it would take effect 18 months after passage, for the most part. I think there are some provisions that would come into effect immediately. Um, just to hit on some like interesting topics, I think there are some interesting general obligations under this law. One of them looks a lot like what we see under EU's GDPR, which is you actually have to have a lawful basis for processing personal information if you're subject to the law. For instance, you'll need consent of the consumer or you'll need processing to be necessary to um, engage in legal compliance. Um, there's data broker registration requirements under the law. You have to conduct risk assessments when processing certain types of data, such as sensitive information, um, or before engaging in certain activities with personal information, such as selling personal information. And one kind of interesting wrinkle there is expressly under the law, if you perform one of these risk assessments, the Attorney General's office can issue a, a civil investigative demand to obtain that risk assessment if it's relevant to an investigation they're performing. There are a number of individual rights that would be provided by this law. I won't go through all of them, but there's going to be a right to know, access, correct, and delete your personal information that's being held by an organization that's subject to the law. Um, and interestingly, you cannot waive your rights. So you can't agree to give up your rights for any reason. Um, the attorney general will have a number of powers and obligations under the law. And I think this is actually a really interesting area. It's how in depth the law goes on this. Um, they'll be able to issue 
civil investigative demands and bring enforcement actions. They'll have the power to seek TROs, preliminary injunctions, permanent injunctions, and monetary penalties for violation of the law. Um, interestingly, the Attorney General would actually have to create template privacy policies, template contracts between controllers and processors, and template risk assessments. So I think this would actually be a very helpful tool for organizations um, going forward if this does actually um, get passed. Like California under the CCPA, the Attorney General here under NIPSA would have to issue regulations fleshing out the law. And I think most interestingly, the Attorney General would have to conduct research and monitor developments relating to personal information and provide a written report to the legislature at least once a year on its research in these developments and make recommendations with respect to privacy legislation. Um, so Massachusetts, if this gets passed, could really become sort of a, a forerunner state in terms of data privacy and security. We kind of have this iterative process of research, gathering information, presenting it to the legislature, and hopefully passing new legislation that kind of um, builds on what we've learned in the past. Just to touch on two final areas, um, there would be a Massachusetts privacy fund created by the law. Essentially, any of the funds that the Attorney General would obtain through attorney's fees, penalties, settlements, anything like that would go into a fund that would then fund the Attorney General's office ability to uh, enforce the law, but also engage it with its own obligations under the law. And then finally, um, if you were in compliance with a law that is as strict or stricter than MIPSA, and the Attorney General's office agrees with you, you're deemed in compliance with MIPSA. But notably, the Attorney General's office can charge a fee to assess whether or not the law you're relying on is, in fact, um, as strict or stricter than MIPSA is. Um, so that's just kind of a high-level overview of MIPSA and potentially what could be coming down the pike in Massachusetts in this area, which is quite interesting. Um, unless anyone has any questions, um, I have I certainly have questions that I can post to Jared and Chris, um, but I open up the floor to others if they want to ask anything. Okay, not seeing any questions, just briefly maybe. Um, Jared, you talked a bit about um, data breach notifications and Adam asked about deficiencies in timing. I'm wondering, other than deficiencies in timing, are there any common deficiencies that you see in, in data breach notifications that you receive? Um, sure. So we um, often see, I wouldn't say this comes so much from uh, firms, but it does come from folks who may have used old notice templates. So often what happens is people will, um, there used to be a $5 fee to place a security freeze on your um, credit profile uh, that was mandated under Massachusetts law. Um, and a security freeze is just like um, basically an order to a credit bureau that you can't open a new account in your name without uh, removing the freeze first. Um, subject to certain exceptions, but those are free. They've been free for about four years, three or four years under federal law and Massachusetts law. And often we will see folks who still reference the $5 fee. So try not to do that. Um, <clears throat> sometimes it comes up in hidden places in your notices sometimes. Um, but we, uh, we see that a lot, but I would say 
um, now that the requirements have changed, uh, there was an adjustment to the law a few years ago, you're required to report to the Attorney General's office whether or not you have a WISP. Um, and that has become, um, I think, the largest source of um, sort of responses by us. Uh, so we'll often get um, letters that say, we don't have a WISP um, because uh, there's not really any other option for the, the attorney to say. <laughs> um uh whether they have one or not they simply don't and so uh in those circumstances we'll usually tell uh tell the attorney hey um you know you really you, you need to do this um the the company needs to do this it's a requirement in massachusetts so i would say that the wisp requirement is still something that we're, we're really focusing on uh, in our companies yeah thank you very much it's very interesting uh, depending on timing, it looks like Maureen has a, has a question. I don't know if we'll have time to go through it, but she asked you to elaborate, I think, on the Uber matter. Um, do you have anything else to say on that? Um, it, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have all the facts sort of at the ready, but um, from what I remember, Uber paid uh, some folks in Florida to um, remain quiet about um, uh, hacking or, or something of that nature. And um, that happened. And then uh, a few years later, Uber finally revealed that there was this large breach of information um, and uh, decided uh, for some reason to not announce it at the time. Um, I think to a lot of the attorneys general that represented a, um, a choice on Uber's part to, to not do that. Um, and that uh, that uh, seemed like both a delay in notification, but also a, um, a it appeared to be a, a known sort of willful delay in notifying um, that um, I think caused, caused a lot more harm to Uber as a result. Thank you. Yep. I think we have hit our, um time for presentation. So barring any final comments or questions, um, thank you everyone for, for attending. And thank you, Jared and Chris, for um, sharing your very helpful background and sort of interest in this area. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, everybody.